Section 23 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 16, 1568-1570, Part 1. The three commissioners named by Elizabeth to sit as judges in the great cause between Mary and her subjects, of which she had been named the umpire, were the Duke of Norfolk, the Earl of Sussex, and Sir Ralph Sadler, a very able negotiator and man of business. On the part of the Scottish nation, the regent Murray, fearing to trust the cause in other hands, appeared in person, attended by several men of talent and consequence. The situation of Mary herself was not more critical or more unprecedented, and scarcely more humiliating, than that in which Murray was placed by her appeal to Elizabeth. Acting on behalf of the infant king his nephew, he saw himself called upon to submit to the tribunal of a foreign sovereign such proofs of the atrocious guilt of the queen his sister as should justify in the eyes of this sovereign and in those of europe the degradation of mary from the exalted station which she was born to fill her imprisonment her violent expulsion from the kingdom and her future banishment or captivity for life an attempt in which though successful there was both disgrace to himself and detriment to the honour and independence of his country and from which if unsuccessful he could contemplate nothing but certain ruin. Struck with all the evils of this dilemma, with the danger of provoking beyond forgiveness his own queen, whose restoration he still regarded as no improbable event, and with the imprudence of relying implicitly on the dubious protection of Elizabeth, Murray long hesitated to bring forward the only charge dreaded by the illustrious prisoner, that of having conspired with Bothwell the murder of her husband. In the meantime Maitland, a Scottish commissioner, secretly attached to Mary, found means to open a private communication with the Duke of Norfolk, and to suggest to this nobleman, now a widower for the third time, the project of obtaining for himself the hand of Mary, and of replacing her by force on the throne of her ancestors. The vanity of Norfolk, artfully worked upon by the Bishop of Ross, Mary's prime agent, caused him to listen with complacency to this rash proposal, and having once consented to entertain it, he naturally became earnest to prevent Mary from preferring that heinous accusation which he had at length apprised the English commissioners that he was provided with ample means of substantiating. After some deliberation on the means of effecting this object, he accordingly resolved upon the step of discovering his views to the regent himself, and endeavouring to obtain his concurrence. Murray, who seems to have felt little confidence in the stability of the government of which he was the present head, and who judged perhaps that the return of the queen as the wife of an English Protestant nobleman would afford the best prospect of safety to himself and his party, readily acceded to the proposal, and consented still to withhold the quote-unquote damning proofs of Mary's guilt which he held in his hand. But neither the Scottish associates of Murray nor the English cabinet were disposed to rest satisfied with this feeble and temporizing conduct. Mary's commissioners, too, emboldened by his apparent timidity, of which the motives were probably not known to them all, began to push their advantage in a manner which threatened final defeat to his party the queen of england artfully incited him to proceed and in spite of his secret engagements with the duke and his own reluctance he at length saw himself compelled to let fall the long-suspended stroke on the head of mary he applied to the english court for encouragement and protection in his perilous enterprise and elizabeth being at length suspicious of the intrigue which had hitherto baffled all her expectations from the conferences at york suddenly gave orders for the removal of the queen of scots from bolton castle and the superintendence of Lord Scrope, the Duke's brother-in-law, to the more secure situation of Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire, 
and the vigilant custody of the Earl of Shrewsbury. At the same time she found pretexts for transferring the conferences from York to Westminster, and added to the number of her commissioners Sir Nicholas Bacon, Lord Keeper, the Earls of Arundel and Leicester, Lord Clinton, and Cecil. Anxious to preserve an air of impartiality, Elizabeth declined giving to the regent all the assurances for his future security which he required, but on his arrival in London she extended to him a reception equally kind and respectful, and by alternate caresses and hints of intimidation she gradually led him on to the production of the fatal casket containing the letters of Mary to Bothwell, by which her participation in the murder of her husband was clearly proved. After steps on the part of his sovereign, from which the duke might have inferred her knowledge of his secret machinations, after discoveries respecting the conduct of Mary which impeached her of guilt so heinous, and covered her with infamy so indelible, prudence and honour alike required that he should abandon for ever the thought of linking his destiny with hers. But in the light and unbalanced mind of Norfolk, the ambition of matching with royalty unfortunately preponderated over all other considerations. He speedily began to weave anew the tissue of intrigue which the removal of the conferences had broken off, and turning once more with fond credulity to Murray, by whom his cause had been before deserted, he again put confidence in his assurances that the marriage project had his hearty approbation, and should receive his effectual support. Melville informs us that this fresh compact was brought about by Sir Nicholas Throgmorton, quote, being a man of a deep reach and great prudence and discretion, who had ever travelled for the union of this isle. But notwithstanding his quote unquote, deep reach, he was certainly imposed upon in this affair, for the regent, insincere perhaps from the beginning, had now no other object than to secure his present personal safety by lavishing promises which he had no intention to fulfil. Melville, who attended him on his return to Scotland, thus explains the secret of his conduct. Quote, at that time the duke commanded over all the north parts of England, where our mistress was kept, and so might have taken her out when he pleased. And when he was angry at the regent, he had appointed the Earl of Westmoreland to lie in his way, and cut off himself and so many of his company as were most bent upon the queen's accusation. But after the last agreement, the duke sent and discharged the said earl from doing us any harm. Yet upon our return, the earl came in our way with a great company of horse, to signify to us that we were at his mercy." It is difficult to believe, notwithstanding this positive testimony, that the Duke of Norfolk, a man of mild dispositions, and guided in the main by religion and conscience, would have hazarded, or would not have scrupled, so atrocious, so inexpiable an act of violence as that of cutting off the Regent of Scotland returning to his own country, under sanction of the public faith and the express protection of the Queen. But he may have indulged himself in vague menaces, which Westmoreland, a bigoted papist, ripe for rebellion against the government of Elizabeth, would have felt little reluctance to carry into effect, and thus the regent's duplicity might in fact be prompted and excused to himself by a principle of self-defence. Whatever degree of confidence Norfolk and his advisers might place in Murray's sincerity, they were well aware that other steps must be taken, and other confederates engaged, before the grand affair of the marriage could be put in a train to ensure its final success there was no immediate prospect of Mary's regaining her liberty by means of the Queen of England, or with her concurrence. For since the production of the great charge against her, to which she had instructed her commissioners to decline making any answer, Elizabeth had regarded her as one who had suffered judgment to go against her by default, and began to treat her accordingly. Her confinement was rendered more rigorous, and henceforth the still pending negotiations respecting her return to her own country, were carried on with a slackness which evidently proceeded from the dread of Mary, and the reluctance of Elizabeth 
to bring to a decided determination a business which could not now be ended either with credit or advantage to the deposed queen. Elizabeth had dismissed the regent to his government without open approbation of his conduct as without censure, but he had received from her in private an important supply of money, and such other effectual aids as not only served to establish the present preponderance of his authority, but would enable him, it was thought, successfully to withstand all future attempts for the restoration of Mary. Evidently, then, it was only by the raising of a formidable party in the English court that anything could be effected in behalf of the royal captive. But her agents and those of the duke assured themselves that ample means were in their hands for setting this machine in action. Elizabeth, it was now thought, would not marry. The Queen of Scots was generally admitted to be her legal heir, and it appeared highly important to the welfare of England that she should not transfer her claims with her hand to any of the more powerful princes of Europe. Consequently, the Duke entertained little doubt of uniting in favour of his suit the suffrages of all those leading characters in the English court, who had formerly conveyed to Mary assurances of their attachment to her title and interests. His own influence amongst the nobility was very considerable, and he readily obtained the concurrence of the Earl of Pembroke, the Earl of Arundel, his first wife's father, and Lord Lumley, a Catholic peer closely connected with the House of Howard. The design was now imparted to Leicester, who entertained into it with an ostentation of affectionate zeal which ought perhaps to have alarmed the too credulous duke. As if impatient to give an undeniable pledge of his sincerity, he undertook to draw up with his own hand a letter to the Queen of Scots, warmly recommending the duke to her matrimonial choice, which immediately received the signatures of the three nobles above mentioned and the rest of the confederates. By these subscribers it was distinctly stipulated that the union should not take place without the knowledge and approbation of the Queen of England, and that the reformed religion should be maintained in both the British kingdoms, conditions by which they at first perhaps believed that they had provided sufficiently for the interests of Elizabeth and of Protestantism. It was, however, immediately obvious that the Duke and his agents had the design of concealing carefully all their measures from their sovereign, till the party should have gained such strength that it would no longer be safe for her to refuse a consent which it was well known that she would always be unwilling to grant. But when, on encouragement being given by Mary to the hopes of her suitor, the kings of France and Spain, and even the Pope himself, were made privy to the scheme and pledged to give it their assistance, all its English, and especially all its Protestant supporters, ought to have been aware that their undertaking was assuming the form of a conspiracy within the enemies of their queen and country against her government and personal safety, against the public peace, and the religion by law established, and nothing can excuse the blindness or palliate the guilt of their perseverance in a course so perilous and so crooked. Private interests were doubtless at the bottom with most or all of the participators in this affair who were not papists, and those, they were not a few, who envied or who feared the influence and authority of Cecil, eagerly seized the occasion to array against him a body of hostility by which they trusted to work his final and irretrievable ruin. It seems to have been by an ambitious rivalry with the secretary that Sir Nicholas Throgmorton, whose early life had exhibited so bold a spirit of resistance to tyranny and popery, when triumphant and enthroned, had been carried into a faction which all his principles ought to have rendered odious to him. In his intercourses with the Queen of Scots as ambassador from Elizabeth, he had already shown himself her zealous partisan. In advising her to sign for her safety the deed of abdication tendered to her at Loch Leven, he had basely suggested that the compulsion under which she acted would excuse her from regarding it as binding. To the English crown he also regarded her future title as incontrovertible. He now represented to his party 
that cecil was secretly inclined to the house of suffolk and that no measure favourable to the reputation or authority of the queen of scots could be carried whilst he enjoyed the confidence of his mistress by these suggestions the duke unfortunately for himself was led to sanction an attempt against the power and reputation of this great minister leicester who had long hated his virtues the old corrupt statesmen winchester pembroke and arundel and the discontented catholic peers northumberland and westmoreland eagerly joined in the plot it was agreed to attack the secretary in the privy council on the ground of his having advised the detention of the money going into the low countries for the service of the king of spain and thus exposing the nation to the danger of a war with this potentate and throgmorton is said to have advised that whatever he answered they should find some pretext for sending him to the tower after which he said it would be easy to compass his overthrow but the penetration of elizabeth enabled her to appreciate justly with a single exception the principles characters and motives of all her servants and she knew that while his enemies were exclusively attached to their own interests cecil was attached also to the interests of his prince his country and his religion that while others with that far-sighted selfishness which involves men in so many intrigues usually rendered fruitless or needless by the after-course of events were bent on securing to themselves the good graces of her successor he was content to depend on her alone that while others were the courtiers the flatterers or the ministers of the queen he and perhaps he only was the friend of elizabeth all the rest she knew that she could replace at a moment him never secret information was carried to her of all that her council were contriving and had almost executed against the secretary full of indignation she hurried to their meeting where she was not expected and by her peremptory mandate put an instant stop to their proceedings making leicester himself sensible by a warmth which did her honour that the man who held the first place in her esteem was by no one to be injured with impunity the earl of sussex the true friend of norfolk and never his abettor in designs of which his sober judgment could discern all the criminality and all the rashness was grieved to the soul that the artifices of his followers should have set him at variance with cecil he was doubtless aware of the advantage which their disagreement would minister against them both to the malignant leicester his and their common enemy and trembling for the safety of the duke and the welfare of both he addressed to the secretary from the north where he was then occupied in the queen's service a letter on the subject eloquent by its uncommon earnestness he tells them that he knows not the occasion of the coldness between him and the duke of which he had acknowledged the existence but that he cannot believe other esteeming both parties as he does than that it must have had its origin in misrepresentation and the ill offices of their enemies and he implores him as the general remedy of all such differences to resort to a full and fair explanation with the duke himself in whom he will find quote, honour truth wisdom and plainness end quote these excellent exhortations were not without effect it is probable that the incautious duke had either been led inadvertently or dragged unwillingly by his faction into the plot against the secretary whose ruin he was not likely to have sought from any personal motive of enmity and accordingly a few weeks after june fifteen sixty nine we find sussex congratulating cecil in a second letter on a reconciliation between them which he trusts will prove entire and permanent hitherto the queen had preserved so profound a silence respecting the intrigues of the duke that he flattered himself she was without a suspicion of their existence but this illusion was soon to vanish in august fifteen sixty nine the queen being at farnham in her progress and the duke in attendance on her she took him to dine with her and in the course of conversation found occasion quote, without any show of displeasure end quote, but with sufficient significance of manner 
to give him the advice, quote, to be very careful on what pillow he rested his head, end quote. Afterwards she cautioned him in plain terms against entering into any marriage treaty with the Queen of Scots. The Duke, in his first surprise, made no scruple to promise on his allegiance that he would entertain no thoughts of her. He even affected to speak of such a connection with disdain, declaring that he esteemed his lands in England worth nearly as much as the whole kingdom of Scotland, wasted as it was by wars and tumults, and that in his tennis-court at Norwich he reckoned himself equal to many a prince. These demonstrations were all insincere. The Duke remained steady to his purpose, and his correspondence with the Queen of Scots was not for a single day intermitted in submission to his sovereign. But he felt that it was now time to take off the mask, and fully confiding in the strength of his party, he requested the Earl of Leicester immediately to open the marriage proposal to Her Majesty, and solicit her consent. This the favourite promised, but for his own ends continued to defer the business from day to day. Cecil, who had recently been taken into the consultations of the Duke, urged upon him with great force the expediency of being himself the first to name his wishes to the Queen. But Norfolk, either from timidity, or more probably from an ill-founded reliance on Leicester's sincerity, and a distrust equally misplaced of that of Cecil, whom he was conscious of having ill-treated, neglected to avail himself of this wise and friendly counsel, by which he might yet have been preserved. Leicester, who watched all his motions, was at length satisfied that his purpose was effected, the victim was inveigled beyond the power of retreat or escape, and it was time for the decoy-bird to slip out of the snare. He summoned to his aid a fit of sickness, the never-failing resource of the courtiers of Elizabeth in case of need. His pitying mistress, as he had doubtless anticipated, hastened to pay him a charitable visit at his own house, and he then suffered her to discover that his malady was occasioned by some momentous secret which weighed upon his spirits, and after due ostentation of penitence and concern, at length revealed to her the whole of the negotiations for the marriage of the duke with the queen of scots including the part which he had himself taken in that business elizabeth who seems by no means to have suspected that matters had gone so far or that so many of her nobles were implicated in this transaction was moved with indignation and commanded the immediate attendance of the duke who conscious of his delinquency and disquieted by the change which he thought he had observed in the countenance of her majesty and the carriage towards him of his brother peers had some time before quitted the court, and retired first to his house in London, and afterwards to his seat in Kenninghall in Norfolk. The Duke delayed to appear, not daring to trust himself in the hands of his offended sovereign, and after a short delay, procured for him by the compassion of Cecil, who persisted in assuring the Queen that he would doubtless come shortly of his own accord, a messenger was sent to bring him up to London. This messenger, on his arrival, found the Duke apparently, and perhaps really, labouring under a violent ague and he suffered himself to be prevailed upon to accept his solemn promise of appearing at court as soon as he should be able to travel and to return without him meanwhile the queen now bent upon sifting this matter to the bottom had written to require the scottish regent to inform her of the share which he had taken in the intrigue and whatever else he knew respecting it murray had become fully aware how much more important it was to his interests to preserve the favour and friendship of elizabeth than to aim at keeping any measures with mary by whom he was now hated with extreme bitterness, and learning that the confidence of the Duke had already been betrayed by the Earl of Leicester, he made no scruple of acquainting her with all the particulars in which he was immediately concerned. It thus became known to Elizabeth that as early as the conferences at York the Regent had been compelled, by threats of personal violence on his return to Scotland, to close with the proposals of the Duke relative to his marriage, that it was with a view to this union 
that Mary had solicited from the States of Scotland a sentence of divorce from Bothwell, which Murray, by the exertion of his influence, had induced them to refuse, and thus delayed the completion of the contract. But it appeared from other evidence that written promises of marriage had actually been exchanged between the Duke and Mary, and committed to the safe-keeping of the French ambassador. It was also found to be a part of the scheme to betroth the infant King of Scots to a daughter of the Duke of Norfolk. The anger of Elizabeth disdained to be longer trifled with, and she dispatched a messenger with peremptory orders to bring up the Duke, quote, his ague notwithstanding, end quote, who found him already preparing to set out on his journey. Cecil, in one of his letters to Sir Henry Norris, dated October 1569, relates these circumstances at length, and expresses his satisfaction in the last, both for the sake of the State and of the Duke himself, whom of all subjects he declares he most loved and honoured. He then proceeds thus, quote, The Queen's Majesty hath willed the Earl of Arundel and my Lord of Pembroke to keep their lodgings here, for that they were privy of this marriage intended, and did not reveal it to Her Majesty. But I think none of them did so with any evil meaning, and of my Lord of Pembroke's intent herein I can witness that he meant nothing but well to the Queen's Majesty. My Lord Lumley is also restrained. The Queen's Majesty hath also been grievously offended with my Lord of Leicester. But considering that he hath revealed all that he saith he knoweth of himself, Her Majesty spareth her displeasure the more towards him. Some disquiets must arise, but I trust not hurtful, for Her Majesty saith she will know the truth, so as every one shall see his own fault, and so stay. My Lord of Huntington is joined with the Earl of Shrewsbury for the Scots Queen's safety. Whilst this matter was in passing, you must not think but the Queen of Scots was nearer looked to than before." The Duke, on his arrival, was committed to the Tower. But neither against him nor any of his adherents did the Queen think proper to proceed by course of law, and they were all liberated after a restraint of longer or shorter duration. It is proper to mention that the adherents of Mary in her own time, and various writers since, have conspired to cast severe reflections upon Elizabeth for committing her to the joint custody of the Earl of Huntington, because this nobleman, being descended by his mother, a daughter of Henry Pole, Lord Montacute, from the house of Clarence, was supposed to put his right of succession to the crown in competition with hers, and therefore to entertain against her peculiar animosity. But on the part of Elizabeth it may be observed, first, that there is not the slightest ground to suspect that this nobleman, who was childless, entertained the most distant idea of reviving the obsolete claims of his family, and certainly if Elizabeth had suspected him of it, he would never have held so high a place in her confidence. Secondly, nothing less than the death of Mary would have served any designs that he might have formed, and by joining him in commission with others for her safe-keeping, Elizabeth will scarcely be said to have put it in his power to make away with her. Thirdly, the very writers who complain of the vigilance and strictness with which the Queen of Scots was now guarded, all acknowledge that nothing less could have baffled the plans of escape which the zeal of her partisans was continually setting on foot. Amongst the warmest of these partisans was Leonard Dacre, a gentleman whose personal qualities, whose errors, injuries, and misfortunes all conspire to render him an object of attention, illustrative as they also are of the practices and sentiments of his age. Leonard was the second son of William, Lord Dacre of Gilsland, descended from the ancient barons Vaux who had held lordships in Cumberland from the days of the Conqueror. In 1568, on the death without issue of his nephew, a minor in wardship to the Duke of Norfolk, Leonard, as heir male, laid claim to the title and family estates, but the three sisters of the last lord disputed with him this valuable succession, and being supported by the interest of the Duke of Norfolk, their stepfather, 
to whose three sons they were married, they found means to defend the claims of their uncle, though indisputably good in law. One instance in a thousand of the scandalous partiality towards the rich and powerful exhibited in the legal decisions of that age. End of section 23